Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to John chapter 12. John 12, verses 1 through 11. And as we head towards Easter, Resurrection Sunday, it is fitting for us to read this passage this morning. So I urge all of you to pay close attention to the devotion of Mary found in this passage. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Mary Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the smell of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. Much of the people therefore knew that Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Amen. And that is the word of God. Well, in today's scripture passage, we see three key events unfold. First, we see the costly devotion to God in the person of Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary, more than her sister Martha, loved Christ and his teachings. Still today, to, to love his words is to love Christ. In this famous passage that is also recorded in both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Mary anoints Jesus with ointment that costs her roughly what would have been a working man's total wages for one year. And clearly, Mary loves God more than money. And that's going to be an important theme throughout this segment. In fact, when I wrote this message, I entitled it, Will Money Make Me Happy? Because juxtaposed to Mary will be Judas, who had the bag. The second thing we'll see in this passage, remember I said three, the second thing we'll see is conversely an idolatrous love of money by Judas Iscariot the eventual betrayer of Christ. Apparently, according to verse 6, Judas was the group's treasurer. And while carrying the money bag, he used to steal from it while fulfilling his office. 
And we'll talk about that in a bit. Again, central to this morning's message. But third and lastly, we will see the irrational spiritual blindness of the religious leaders, insomuch that they were contemplating about killing Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead roughly two months earlier. And why did they want to kill Lazarus? Because of irrational, jealous rage. Verse 11 states that Lazarus' resurrection was a miracle, such a miracle beyond any dispute, any doubt, that as a result, many of the Jews turned and put their faith in Jesus Christ. This infuriated the chief priests to the point they wanted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Can you imagine that? Jesus raised the man from the dead and the, Pharisee, the, the, the chief priests want to put that very man back to death. Now I want you to listen closely. Both now and it was during Jesus' day, there will be people for whom no rational proof will ever cause them to believe in Jesus Christ. For some people, they are so set on their disbelief that even a resurrection right in front of their faces won't sway them to Christ. You could bring in all the proofs on the historicity of the resurrection. There are many. You could bring in the archaeological discoveries that have backed up the New Testament. There are many. You could bring in the verifiable evidences of the Old Testament. There are many. But for some, they are so set in their disbelief that they will not believe in Christ, despite the evidence. And it helps to know the difference between the two groups of people. It'll save you time. And this is absolutely astounding. Because you see, in 2,000 years, time has not changed human nature. 2,000 years later, there are many in our world today who, like Judas in verse 6, will disguise their love for money by claiming some sort of righteous motive. If you were a disciple standing next to Judas that day, you might have actually agreed with him. Oh, pragmatically speaking, he's right. We could have fed X amount of mouths with the sale of this ointment. The end result is always disastrous, however. Because money, even if accumulated, fails to deliver the happiness that humanity so desperately craves. This is not only a biblical lesson, but it is now being rediscovered by modern researchers. I say rediscovered because it's always been true. Back in 2010, a major study was released by economist Angus Deaton, who once won the Nobel Prize. This is a Nobel Prize winning researcher and his colleague, Daniel Kahneman, at the Center for Health and Well-Being at Princeton University. Their study showed that once your income exceeds $75,000 a year, your happiness or your day-to-day emotional well-being does not improve much as your income grows. Factor in today's inflation and adjust for the cost of living in your neck of the woods. And the truth behind that $75,000 figure or $100,000 or whatever 
still holds true today. Money will not make you happier. But truth be told, while helpful, you did not need a Nobel Prize winner to figure that truth out for you. Back in the 13th century, a brilliant theologian philosopher by the name of Thomas Aquinas, while contemplating on the Bible, wrote the following words of listen. I want, I want you to listen to these words of wisdom carefully. Quote, I answer that it is impossible for man's happiness to consist in wealth. For wealth is twofold, natural and artificial. Natural wealth is that which serves man as a remedy for his natural wants, such as food, drink, clothing, cars, dwellings, and such like. While artificial wealth is that which is not a direct help to nature as money, but is invented by the art of man for the convenience of exchange and as a measure of things saleable. Now it is evident that man's happiness cannot consist in natural wealth, for wealth of this kind is sought for the sake of something else, viz. as a support of human nature. Consequently, it cannot be man's last end. Rather, it is ordained to man as to its end. And as to artificial wealth, it is not sought save for the sake of natural wealth since man would not seek it except because by its means he procures for himself the necessities of life. Consequently, much less can it be considered in the light of the last end. Therefore, it is impossible for happiness, which is the last end of man, to consist in wealth. End quote. Now, some of you might have got lost there. So, to put it simply, Aquinas contends, essentially, there are two forms of wealth, natural, artificial. Natural wealth, think about it this way, are things that directly help us sustain life, food, drink, clothing. Artificial wealth, according to Aquinas, is money, an item created by mankind for easier exchange. Essentially, because artificial wealth was created for the attainment of natural wealth, we need only to look into whether or not natural wealth will bring us happiness. But upon examination, we quickly discover that natural wealth items such as food, drink, and clothing are simply necessities to support life. Hence, our, once our basic needs are met, anything in excess cannot reasonably deliver happiness. This is precisely the truth discovered by the Nobel Prize-winning researcher back in 2010 and the $75,000 annual income amount. Everything makes sense. The Bible, once again, is true. Once your basic needs are met, the hoarding of excess basic necessities cannot reasonably deliver greater levels of happiness. I compare it to toilet paper. Yes, if you don't have any, you will be quite miserable. But once the basic need is met, no rational person expects to be happier in life by hoarding and accumulating greater rolls of toilet paper. That's how I thought about it when I was writing the sermon prep. I don't know if it makes sense for you. It did for me. 
But you look around your society today, till this day, you still have masses of very smart people with a singular goal in life, and that is to make more and more money. It's ridiculous. And listen to what the Bible says in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I want you to listen carefully. Money could buy you food and drink. But do not be fooled. It cannot buy you righteousness, peace, or joy. Only the Holy Spirit could bestow those upon you. Amen? If you recall, 2,000 years ago, Jesus met a woman by the well, who was also in search of drink, an item identified by a kindness as what? Right, a necessity, natural need, met by natural wealth. And do you remember what Jesus told her? It's found in John, 14, John 4, 13. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a fount of water springing up to eternal life. Well, there you have it, straight from the mouth of Jesus. Money will never bring you happiness because money can never quench your soul's deepest thirst. Money buys water, but water along with food, water, and food and clothing were all made to serve your basic needs. They were meant to be servants, not masters. They are means to an end and not the end. The end of humanity is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. And that, my friends, money cannot buy. Augustine put it well when he said, Our hearts were made for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. In short, money cannot buy you happiness because money cannot buy you God. If you leave with that, you left with a massive kernel of truth. Since God ultimately made humans to know him, humans and their happiness are inextricable from God. God made you so that you cannot be happy without Him. Go test that out. You know it's true. Billionaires know it's true. They buy a yacht, one week later, their toy doesn't make them happy anymore. Remember when you were little kids, you asked your mom and dad for a toy, you got that toy, you played with it for about a week, and you're like, ah, I don't, it's boring. We thirst again. And therefore, if you're a believer in in the gospel this morning, then you have a treasure far greater than the treasure that Judas had in his money bag. Now, if you heard me preach before, it will be amiss if I don't give you that gospel. What is the gospel? There is a God who is righteous, holy, and just. God of love and compassion. Humans are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And in fact, we are not, listen to me carefully, we are not sinners because we sin. But rather we sin because we are sinners. We are by nature sinners. We inherit original sin. 
And the consequence for sin is eternal hell, punishment in the fires of hell, a literal hell from a holy and righteous God. The devil doesn't run hell. The devil is a co-prisoner in hell. God runs hell. And the, and the Bible says that the penalty for sin is eternal hell. And that's bad news for all of us because that's what we deserve. There's not a single one of us. There's not a single person here who's not a sinner. And the proof in that is that we all die. The Bible says that sin came into the world and sin has brought death. And the fact is, if you die, it proves you are a sinner. The good news, however, is that God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, Jesus, fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life and He died on the cross and paid for your sins. He historically, it's not a myth, resurrected from the grave three days on the third day, resurrecting and proving that He is indeed the Son of God, And that if you would repent and believe in Him as your Lord, God, and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. And the Bible says that the moment you believe in that gospel, you are born again. I can't make you a Christian. Martin Luther once famously said, there are two things every man must do for himself. He must die by himself, and he must believe by himself. And that's true for all of us as we head towards eternity this morning. One day you will die and you will die by yourself. It will not be a community event. And one day you will stand before God naked and by yourself and give an account for your own life. Every man must die by himself. Every man must believe by himself. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It doesn't matter if you've been in church your entire life. Today, today might be the day the Holy Spirit turned the lights on and it made sense. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, believe in Jesus and be saved. So where are you in life right now? As we read the passage this morning, Judas foolishly exchanged God for more money. He had more. He had money. He wanted more money. 30 pieces of silver. He blindly exchanged eternal life for more toilet paper, if you will. And you know, it's no wonder that Jesus taught so often about the dangers of loving money. Jesus once said that a man could not serve two masters. We are incapable of serving both God and money. We will certainly hate one and love the other. What about you? Where are you in life right now? And throughout life, money will periodically tempt you in various ways to come in and exchange your Savior. Perhaps you've neglected a call to become a missionary because you're afraid of food on the table and roof over your head. That's that's a way money tempts. Oh, will God provide? If you answer that call, will God provide? A competing promise is made by money against God. 
Or perhaps you desire to share the gospel with a co-worker, but you're afraid. You're afraid that if you share the gospel, you might lose your job if you do. There is another temptation. Or just maybe you're not financially giving to Christ's work because you're convinced that if you do, you won't have enough for yourself. You see, temptation abounds and it appears in various forms. And during those times of testing, it is helpful to read Matthew 6. What does it say in Matthew 6? Matthew 6, Jesus promised us a wonderful, listen to this, there is a wonderful statement here. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Again, you have a kindness. All met by natural wealth. Converted to artificial wealth, exchange for money. Don't worry about these things. For the Gentiles, in other words, the unbelievers, the unbelievers strive after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them. And money comes in and goes, does he really? Yes! Your resolve is this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do you believe that this morning? Your life is too precious to waste on something as foolish as money. I'm going to say that again. Your life is too precious. It's too precious to waste on something as foolish as money. In closing, I leave you with this. Today's passage was one of contrast, right? And money was at the center of it all, if you sort of missed it. Looking back, both Mary and Judas, long dead now, but through their use or non-use of money, left behind tremendous legacies. Think about that. You never see a U-Haul attached to a hearse. You can't take it with you. Okay? When you go, you go with nothing. You came into this world with nothing, you're going back with nothing. How will you use those items God has stewarded you with. Instead, remember, here's what I said. I didn't say ownership. I said stewardship. You are simply managers of God's money. And Mary and Judas left behind two different legacies. We all want to be remembered as Mary, not Judas, but our actions will determine our legacies. The year was 249 A.D. So for two short years, Trajan Decius was emperor of the Roman Empire. But what a terrible two years it was. Under Decius's rule, persecution of Christians, which had been confined prior to specific areas and were sporadic, became empire-wide. It all began in 250 A.D. when the emperor decreed mandatory participation in a suppliciado. A suppliciado is a sacrifice offered to the pagan Roman gods in front of a government witness. All 60 million Roman citizens were required to participate. 
Once completed, each participant was given a libiachi, which is where we get our English word libel. This certificate reminds me, I'm not saying it is, but it kind of reminds me of the COVAX card we walk around with. That certificate, signed by the government official, proves that the person has sacrificed to the Roman gods. This tactic worked wonderfully for the emperor in weeding out Christians from faithful Christians, in obeying the first commandment, and those who were faithful absolutely refused to sacrifice to Rome's gods. As a result, many Christians who defied the edict were tortured, imprisoned, and killed, and all their worldly goods and wealth confiscated. Fabian, the bishop of Rome, was the first Christian of prominence to be killed for refusing the emperor's edict. However, not all were faithful. Wishing to escape the wrath of Rome, some Christians bribed local officials who were willing to issue falsified documents for a fee. Other Christians simply yielded to Rome's demands and sacrificed to Rome's gods. In one village, in fact, it's recorded that so many Christians turned out to sacrifice to the Roman gods that the officials had to turn a lot of them away and told them to come back the next day. Christians. Those faithful, faithless Christians aside, history records that many Christians, on the other hand, preferred death rather than satisfying Rome's blasphemous demands. One such Christian was Nicomachus, who was brought before Roman officials, ordered to bow before Rome's gods. Knowing torture and death awaited him, the condemned man replied, I cannot pay respect to devils, which is only due to the Almighty. And he was killed. His faith was purer than gold or silver refined in fire. And obviously the question I'm going to ask is, what about you? What about me? As I was preparing this morning's message, I asked myself, what would I do in that situation? And we would only hope we make the right decision. We'll never know, right? But for some of us, God will put us to the test. And today we read about Mary and Judas, and only one had faith purer than silver and gold. The other chose to worship silver and gold. And I pray we choose the right master for our eternities hinge on our decision. Let us pray.